right, so good morning, everybody. We are going to finish up our study of Hebrews. Rather, our study of Hebrews 11, which ended up becoming a study of Hebrews 12, and now a study of Hebrews 13. So someday we'll go back and we'll start at chapter 1, and we'll get the rest of the book of Hebrews. But we're going to take a break from that for now and wrap it up here in the last chapter. I'm sure, I'm sure, because I don't have a chapter 14 to go okay, to. I was say, so, yeah, we're going to stick with uh, uh, Hebrews 13, and then next week, I'm just going to pray about it. I don't know what the Lord wants me to talk to y'all about, so uh, it's going to be something, it's going to be something about the resurrection, okay? That, that much is clear as far as exactly what God wants me to say. Y'all pray for me, and I'll pray too, and those prayers will go together, and... Hopefully it'll be something that pleases the Lord. But anyways, we're going to be in Hebrews 13 and we're going to cover most of the chapter. We'll briefly read the last few verses there because those are the closing words. And so we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. But mainly the meaty part of the text is going to be verses 1 through 21. So we're going to look at that in four different sections. And if you have your notes, I passed all those out. Hopefully y'all got a copy of them. Uh, Today we're talking about the Melchizedekian priesthood. The Melchizedekian priesthood. And that is a really hard word. That would be a really tough one at a spelling bee. But this contrasts with the Levitical priesthood. So before we actually look at the text and we talk about our duty as Melchizedekian priests, we're going to talk about why there even is such a thing as a Melchizedekian priesthood. Okay? Melchizedek. You can say Melchizedek if you want, Nana. But um, going back and covering the book of Hebrews, summarizing some of the main themes a little bit. The Bible says, suffer the little children. So we're doing our best to do that right now. <laughs> but anyways, at the very beginning of Hebrews, or at least towards the beginning, in chapter 3, I've made reference to this before. It talks about how we're part of the house of God. Now, when we think of the term house, we tend to think of a home. Okay, it's a place where people congregate. It's a place a place where people fellowship as a family. But in Hebrews 3, when it talks about house, it's referring back to the house that was present among the Israelites in the wilderness, the tabernacle. And it talks about Moses serving in that house. And then it talks about how we are the house. We are a temple a temple of the Most High God, the Holy Spirit indwells us. And because we are part of this house, we're part of the body, we also minister as priests. But our priesthood is different than the old priesthood. The old priesthood is called the Levitical priesthood. And these are some ways in which the Levitical priesthood is inferior to the one that we are part of. So, number one, the Levitical priesthood involved only a select number of priests. So that wasn't how it was initially set up. Whenever God called the people out of Egypt, he told them before Moses received the law on Mount Sinai that they were to be a nation of priests, a nation of priests, which seems to indicate it wasn't going to be limited to one particular tribe. Before this, priests were the firstborn. The priests would represent the family unit. And there were priests already among the people. It mentions that. It mentions that when Moses came up, that the people and the priests were not allowed to come up. And if they came in, they touched the mountain and they'd be put to death. 
So apparently there were already priests at that point. These priests of the family would be like Jethro, who was a priest of Midian, a priest of the Most High God. What would happen from then on among the Israelites, if things went according to plan, is the firstborn would have been set apart, dedicated to God. At the Passover, the firstborn was spared. And so the firstborn was to be given over to God, or they were to be redeemed uh, through an offering. But they were dedicated to the service of God. So that would seem to indicate that you have all the tribes supplying priests to the Levitical priesthood before it was called that. Right? Because eventually it would be relegated just to the Levites. Now, why was it relegated just to the Levites? Well, whenever Aaron makes the golden calf, and that's a really interesting story. I was just reading about that earlier this week. Apparently there was this Jewish tradition that the devil indwelt the golden calf. And that when Aaron threw the gold in, it's mentioned in the text that the golden calf came out. And so according to a very ancient Jewish idea, basically the devil took that shape and he moved about. And that makes me wonder if there's a connection between that tradition and the false prophet who's sort of like an, an anti-priest and the image of the beast that is given life by the false prophet. I don't know if there's a connection, but it's very interesting to think about. But the point is the Levites, they stood with Moses. When he came down from the mountain, he said, who is with me? Who is with God? And the Levites came over to his side and many, many people were put to death on that day. It gives the number. And I can't tell you off the top of my head, the number you can go back and look at the account and it gives you that number. But from that point on, it appears that because of the Levites, expressing their loyalty to God, their loyalty to the covenant. They were made the priestly tribe and the other tribes missed out on that particular inheritance. So they lost that, that firstborn inheritance. And that's something that the author of Hebrews warns against in chapter three. He says, if we are committed to the Lord, if we hold fast to our profession of faith, if we hold fast to that, then we are the household of God. However, that implies that if we don't hold fast, then we can lose that position as a member of God's house. And again, house is defined as a priesthood. So in chapter three, what seems to be suggested there is, is a mild warning that if you don't hold fast to your profession, you can in some way lose your portion as a priest in God's house, not a Levitical priest, but a priest after the order of Melchizedek because of our union with Christ as a member of his body. Now, exactly what that indicates, it's not 100% clear. Obviously, if you're not faithfully serving the Lord and holding fast to your profession, you're not acting as a priest and you're not enjoying the benefits of being a priest either. The Lord's not going to bless you if you're being unfaithful. Rather, he's going to discipline you. But it also seems to carry over into the millennium in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. The elders, when they're singing a praise to God, he says, because... They say, because we've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, he has made us kings and priests. Kings and priests. Melchizedek was a king priest. He was the king of Salem. And he was also a priest of the most high God. And so these concepts of king and priest are united to Melchizedek. Jesus is the king of kings and our high priest. And we reign with him as kings under his authority. That's why he's the king of kings. Okay. We are under that authority. That authority is delegated to us. If we're faithful, that's an, a heavenly reward, an eternal reward that we'll experience not just in the millennium, but it's going to carry over into the new heaven, new earth. Again, the idea of a priest is intimate access. 
Okay, intimate fellowship. And I think that Hebrews 3 is saying that we have been brought into an exceptionally uh, blessed privilege of being a priest of God. We have access to God in a way that the Levitical priest didn't even have access to God. And so we should not take that for granted. We should hold fast our profession because if we, if we lay aside through sin our service to God as a priest, then in the millennium, in the new heaven, the new earth, we're going to miss out on the privilege of being a priest of God. And we're going to talk sometime soon, probably in the next month or so. The next study we're going to do after we go through all the feasts, we've been talking about that on Wednesdays. After we talk about the feasts, we're going to get into the overcomer rewards. So in Revelation, at the very beginning, the letters that are given to the churches, it mentions all of these promises to the overcomers, and they seem to be special rewards for Christians who are faithfully following the Lord and holding fast their profession of faith. And we're going to see how some of this idea of access as a priest to God comes across in those rewards. But again, moving on, talking about Levitical priesthood, it was a select number of priests, while in this new priesthood, all believers are priests. Everybody, we're, we're not only part of the body corporately, but we are temples of the Most High God. Each and every believer is a walking temple of the Lord. The Holy Spirit indwells us. So that's not something given to a special class. That's something that we all come into when we get saved. The Levitical priesthood was temporary. Obviously, it passed away. The Old Covenant was not everlasting. The New Covenant is everlasting, as Hebrews 13 indicates, as we'll see in a minute. Number three, there was limited access, as I already referred to, the Levitical priests were not able to go into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest was. But even Levitical priests, they came into the tabernacle of God, not all the time. Yes. I don't know what's making you lose your hand. No, go ahead. But you said that it, it lasts forever. And does that mean that in the millennial kingdom and in heaven, we will still be involved with the Holy Spirit as temples? That's a really good question. I don't think that we'll ever be separated from the Holy Spirit in any way. I don't know if exactly the way things are going to be in the millennium and the new heaven and the new earth is going to be like it is today. But I don't think that we're ever going to be separated from the Holy Spirit. Um, the Bible seems to put the Holy Spirit and eternal life together. Okay, They're not identical. Okay, The Holy Spirit imparts that life to us. But when the Holy Spirit gives us life, he doesn't say, okay, I've given you eternal life. Now I'm going to go. He, he, he's here to stay. So that would suggest to me that, yes, we're going to have the Holy Spirit indwelling us forever. And again, our body will be different. We'll have a spiritual body, not, not a terrestrial or physical body. But we'll still have a body, which would allow for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit perpetually. Yes. Um, so there was limited access um, in the Old Covenant. And this is controversial, but I think that it is well supported by the Bible. In the Old Covenant there wasn't a regeneration. Now, this is something that, again, not everybody will agree with me on. Uh, I do believe that people were justified in the Old Testament. Uh, Abraham is a proof positive example of that. But since the Holy Spirit was not indwelling people in the Old Testament, at, which is pretty much agreed upon, at least by dispensationalists, then I have a hard time believing that they were regenerated and received eternal life if the Holy Spirit was not indwelling them. It's a possibility, but I doubt it. But the point is, there was limited access in the Old Testament. They didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. You couldn't look at any member of Israel and say they are a temple of the Most High God because that gift was not given until Pentecost uh, many hundreds of years later. And lastly, and this is a really important one, Moses was a servant in the house. 
In Hebrews 3, it says he was a servant, which contrasts with Jesus, who is the son. And we, of course, are always going to be, in a sense, servants of God. Even in Revelation 22, it says his servants shall serve him. But we're not just going to be servants. We're servants and we're children of God. So in the Old Testament, they serve God. And one day God was going to send them the adoption. He was going to send them the Holy Spirit and bring them into the family as children. But it isn't until the New Testament that, that Paul teaches the adoption has come. The sonship has come. He talks about this in Galatians chapter 4. And so the Melchizedekian priesthood is different than the Levitical one. Because while in the Levitical priesthood they were servants of God, in the Melchizedekian one, we're not just servants, we're also sons and daughters of God. So this priesthood is superior in a number of ways. But because we're united with Christ, we participate in this everlasting ministry and we participate in this divine sonship. And that's how it was intended. Uh, the second point on your notes in Genesis 2.5, when it mentions that Adam is to subdue the earth, he's to, to keep it. Those words are used together frequently in the Hebrew. Again, when they're used together, they refer to the ministry of a priest. And so it's been pointed out by some theologians like uh, G.K. Beale. And it's also been pointed out by ancient Jews that Moses was a priest of God. And so we were always intended to reflect God as his image bearers. Moses, of course, or sorry, uh, Adam, get the right Old Testament character in my mind. Adam, of course, fell short of this being completely fulfilled in his life because he sinned and was cast out of the garden along with Eve. But this is something God always intended for us to be his children and to be priests reflecting his life. Uh, reflecting his holiness, reflecting his truth. And so now let's look at the text itself. I know that's a lot of background, but it's important to really appreciate the text. In chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. So we should experience their pain as if it is our pain. Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers or fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conversation, your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my help, helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Remember them which have the rule over you, or which lead you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, and today, and forever. So that's the first section. And the first point is revolving around this idea of our conduct as Melchizedekian priests. So how should we behave as the priest of the Most High God. In the book of Leviticus, it gives you lots of information about ritual purity, ceremonial purity. But in the Melchizedekian priesthood, the ceremonial purity is not highlighted. We're not under the law anymore. Rather, our conduct is listed first here. So the first thing is we should have familial concern for one another, brotherly love. So this is not saying that we should regard other members in the body as simply friends or acquaintances, but we are to regard them as if they are part of the same family because we are. It's not just a metaphor that we're part of the same family. We literally share the same, you could say, spiritual DNA with one another. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have the life of Christ in you. I have the life of Christ in me. And so we are literally spiritually united to one another. 
just as families are united to each other through blood, we are united through the blood of Jesus. And so that's the first thing to have concern for one another as members of a family. And it says here in verse number two, be not forgetful to entertain strangers. Commentators differ on exactly what that means. Some people think that strangers would refer to Christians that you're not acquainted with already. So these are people who, let's say a missionary travels into your area. You have no idea who this person is. You're not on a first name basis, but this person needs your hospitality. Okay. They depend upon that. And so you should show them that same brotherly love you would to your congregation the people that you're constantly fellowshipping with because they're part of the same body. That's probably what's being referred to here. Obviously though, this does not exclude showing love to one another as just members of the human race, because we are all descendants of Adam and Eve. Uh, Jesus died for the sins of the world, not just for the sins of the elect. He died for everybody uh, without exception. And so based on that, we should show love to one another. Uh, Jedbo, move your foot, hun. You're going to bump the microphone. But, Familial concern, huh? That's okay. It's okay, baby. Uh, sexual purity is the next thing that's mentioned here. It, it says, yes, go ahead. What about entertaining angels unknowingly? Good, entertaining angels unawares. This is probably a reference. This is probably a reference back to um, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't think it exclusively refers to that. Uh, this is apparently a general thing. I think angels probably still have a ministry like this and we're just not aware of it, right? It's something we're not aware of. But Lot, when he received the messengers from Abraham, did he recognize them as angels initially? It doesn't appear that he did. I think that that probably didn't dawn upon him until after they struck the men of the city with blindness. And then he realized that these were supernatural messengers. Um, in a similar way, even though we're talking about the angel of the Lord in this case, in the story of Jacob, he wrestled with this man all night, did not know who he was. It wasn't until that his um, hip joint is is put out of socket. When, when that happens, he recognizes this is a supernatural person who has the authority to impart a divine blessing. And so that's when he re requests the blessing. In fact, he demands, he says, I'm not going to let go of you until you give it to me. And the Lord, in this case, gives him the blessing. Jacob, though, asks for his name. And instead of the person saying, well, I'm Gabriel or I'm Michael, the person says, why do you ask my name? As in, you already know who I am. And then Jacob names the place Peniel, which means face of God. So he didn't, he probably thought the person was an angel at first. Okay. He knew what angels were. Um, he probably had heard the story. Okay. Of the two angels appearing to his uh, grandfather, Abraham. He probably heard about that, but he didn't know that it was the Lord himself until after that conversation. So this means that today, when people come and they serve as messengers of the Lord, we could entertain people thinking that they are our brothers in Christ, humans that share our faith, when they could in actuality be angels. So that's something interesting to think about. I mean, I know that uh, my Dita, uh, Nana, you probably know this story better than I do, but I can remember uh, my Dita telling me something about how when he was in the hospital, there was a nurse who talked to him and uh, gave him words of comfort. And I don't know exactly when it was. It may have been when, when Mingi, when his dad passed away. But I can remember him sharing with me this conversation that he had with this woman and him just feeling like there was something different about this person. And afterwards, he wanted to get in touch with her and to thank her for all her kind words. And he couldn't find this person. He couldn't find any evidence that they were employed by the hospital. He called other hospitals in the area and they could find no 
information whatsoever about this person. So he was convinced that this person was an angel sent to give him comfort in that time of need. Again, we don't know, but again, that's the point, right? right. We're not going to be aware of it. When we get to heaven, we'll probably after the fact learn a lot about this. So we should be on our best behavior. We should always be on our best behavior because God is in us. Uh, we're temples of the Holy Spirit, right? But it adds a level of accountability um, or, or a level of awareness to know that, hey, angels could be appearing and knocking on our door seeking our hospitality. The next thing is, like I, like I said, uh, just covering this briefly because only one verse is dedicated to it. It's pretty simple. Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. So contrary to what a lot of people think, a lot of uh, people have criticized Christians in saying that, you know, Christians are prudish and, you know, and they suppress sexual expression. That's not true. We simply put it in the proper context. And that context is the marriage bed. Uh, whoremongers refers to any form of sexual relations outside of marriage. Um, adultery specifically here would refer to between uh, married individuals. So that, that captures everything. Okay, our standard is the biblical one, one man, one woman, Adam and Eve, intended to live together forever. Now let's continue on uh, looking at verse number five. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. So we should be, as far as material things go, we should be content. We should hunger after righteousness. And the Lord Jesus said, those who hunger after righteousness will be filled. But when it comes to material things, we should be content with what we have knowing that the Lord is with us wherever we go. That should automatically be what comes to our mind. Whenever we're struggling, we feel like we're missing something, okay? Something, you know, isn't right in our life. Maybe it could be a relationship. Maybe we're missing out on a relationship. We have a loved one who's estranged from us, or it could be financial burdens, okay? It could be physical burdens. We feel like there's something missing. We always know that the Lord is with us, and that part of our life is the most important, the most significant, and that's why he mentions it here. The Lord says he'll never leave us. He won't forsake us. He's well aware of our needs. And if we trust in him, he'll supply what we need so we can accomplish the purpose he has for our life. And so we can say boldly in verse six, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. And of course, this had special significance for these people, the Hebrews, because they were living during a time of persecution. And so I'm sure that they would have really loved to have that security to know that they're safe a security which we enjoy right now, which many people in the world don't have. But even if we didn't have that security, we should be thankful for it. But when we don't have it, we can always fall back on this blessing that never changes and never wavers because God is faithful to us and he never leaves us. And of course, the last thing here mentioned as far as our conduct as Melchizedekian priests is verse number seven. Remember them which have the rule over you. Rule over you refers to people who are leading congregations as pastors who are shepherds of the flock. In a sense, we only have one shepherd and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, but he has delegated many gifts to the body. And one of those gifts is teaching and pastoral ministry. And this is what's referenced here. And it's not just following them as people. It's following them because they follow Christ. And that's why it mentions, and I wondered why is verse eight just kind of thrown in there. It says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today, and forever. It seems just kind of thrown in there. It doesn't seem to flow. Well, when you consider it closely, it does flow perfectly well because it says to follow these people's faith, to look to these examples, consider the end of their conversation, consider the end of their conduct. So this, I think, not only refers to the people that were currently leading them, but people who had led them before who had passed away. No doubt they had many people that led them and instructed them who had taught them the word of God, but yet 
they were killed because of persecution or they passed away from other, um, uh, from other circumstances as well. But when we consider following people, we're not following them for the sake of them. We're following them for the sake of the Lord Jesus who they follow. And so again, this has to do with our ministry as image bearers. Pastors are to bear the image of Christ to their congregation. They're to, to reflect the Lord to them. Uh, fathers are to reflect that to their children, mothers to their children, wives to their husbands, husbands to their wives. We're all priests in some shape, form, or fashion because we're members of the body. Exactly how we relate to each other as priests is going to vary depending on our gifts that we receive from the Lord. But here, humble obedience to the Lord as he is represented by overseers, as he's represented by pastors, is part of our conduct as priests. So that humble observance is not to them because of their special human authority. It's because of the authority of Christ that has been granted to them. And as we follow their teachings, we're following the teachings of the Lord. And that's why a pastor's job is to stay close to the Lord of God or to the Lord and to the word of God. So that way they can bear his image well. All right, now let's move on to verse number nine. It says, be not carried away with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats or foods, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us therefore, let us go therefore unto him without the camp bearing his reproach. We'll stop there and we'll move on in just a moment. But this is referring to the creed, the doctrinal basis of Melchizedekian priests. Now there's a lot of doctrine that's already been shared in this book and which we should all give heed to. At the very end of chapter 13, he of course tells them to heed this word of exhortation. So the doctrine in these verses does not exhaustively explain what we as Christians should believe, but it does summarize it pretty well, I think. The first thing that's part of our creed as Melchizedekian priests is grace and not law. Grace and not law. They were people in this day, just as there are people today, that were saying, if you want to be a holy person who is more closely uh, c committed to God, you need to keep the laws as far as ceremonial purity go. You need to uh, eat these types of meats as opposed to these other meats. You need to keep the Sabbath. You need to keep the festivals, observe those new moon uh, times and seasons. All of these things were part of the law. And if you did these things and did not pass judgment on another believer, then you could do that. I mean, the New Testament never says you can't choose to follow his diet. It never says that you can't keep the festivals. It doesn't say it's a sin. It just says it's a sin to judge another who does not do those things. And there were people who were doing this at this time. Today, we have the Hebrew Roots Movement that is doing this. And they genuinely and honestly, I know based on conversations I've had with people like this, and, I, and I've read a number of, of what they've put down on paper, but they do genuinely judge other believers or, or see them as... Uh, below them because they're not fulfilling the law. They may, they may say to some effect that, oh, we're not like that, but they are because they believe that keeping the law brings them closer to God. And that's not true. Now, Paul or any author of the New Testament, I, I mentioned Paul because he talks about this in Colossians in particular, but if he thought, if he believed that in order to get closer to God, you had to keep the law or you're missing out on a special blessing, a special spiritual blessing. If you don't keep the law, he would have told him to keep the law. 
but there is no special spiritual blessing from keeping the law. We can be reminded of God's truth in other ways. We can be reminded of God's truth by studying the festivals in his word, but it's not required that we keep them. If you want to keep them, go right ahead. If you want to keep the Sabbath, go right ahead. But you're not going to be closer to God in your sanctification by keeping the law. Rather, the heart needs to be established with grace. And that, guys, is that's one of the most important things that I believe that as a congregation, we need to hold on to and never give an inch on. Our hearts be established with grace. And that everything that we do is motivated not by legalism, not by questioning our stance before God, our position in Christ, but knowing where we stand, knowing we are forgiven no matter what, knowing we are eternally secure, and having that grace in our hearts wherever we go, whatever we do, that is going to be the governing principle of our life. The next part of the Creed of Melchizedekian Priest is fellowship and not ceremony. It says, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. So this is the idea of food, and we love food in our group. Okay, we eat probably every time we get together, just about. Even on Wednesday night, we have dessert and coffee. We're not supposed to be eating Wednesday night. We're not supposed we to be. I mean, but we do anyways, don't we? <laughs> so, but you know what? It's good, okay? We, we have this special time where we come together over, over physical food around the physical table, but that fellowship is our spiritual food, being united together in the name of Jesus. And... The priest had the right to eat from the sacrifice. This is referring to those who serve in the tabernacle. Okay, the Levitical priesthood had the right to eat from these sacrifices. But the author here is saying there's an even better food that those people don't get. If you've ever been an Israelite and you've wondered, man, those priests, they have it so good. They have all these privileges. They have all these blessings. Look at the fellowship they're able to have. You know, they're able to go into the temple. We're not able to go in there. They're able to eat the, the showbread there. The high priest is able to go into the Holy of Holies. The author here is saying, we have something even better to look forward to than that. Our priesthood is greater. And so we unite together in fellowship. This, I don't think, exclusively refers to the Lord's Supper. I think it simply refers to fellowship. And we participate in this bread of life, experiencing the abundant life whenever we come together. So fellowship and not ceremony is what's to govern a Melchizedekian priest. Next is reproach and not security. It says we should go without the camp. It says that Jesus went outside the camp. He went outside the city wall of Jerusalem, and there he suffered. In the day of atonement, when they sacrificed the goat and the bullock, after they put the blood in the Holy of Holies, the high priest did, they would take the remains of the animals and they would burn them outside the camp. And so Jesus is the one who did that for us. Okay, He removed the enmity between us and God. It was taken outside the camp and our sin was separated from us. And he did that in faithful service to the Father out of love and we in faithful service to Christ out of love for the brethren, out of love for the Lord Jesus. We should also go without the camp. This is referring to going outside the Jerusalem way of living. When I say the Jerusalem way of living, this is Judaism here. They're tempted to go back to Judaism. He's saying, no, go outside the wall. Not literally. It's not as if you lived in Jerusalem, you had to go outside the wall. Okay, he's saying symbolically, we shouldn't pitch our tent, okay, in this system. Live outside the box. Yeah, we should. We shouldn't put ourselves in the box of the Levitical system of the law because we've been set free from that. And when you go outside the camp, are you going to experience reproach? Of course you are. 
But Jesus did that for us. Now, what's the reward for us? What can we expect? We don't need a reward to motivate us because we have the grace of Christ to. But if we if we wanted one, the Lord certainly supplies plenty of motivations for us. In addition to having everlasting life, which we have as a free gift, he's also promised other privileges for us. And that's something that comes up a lot in the book of Hebrews. And the next thing is heaven, not Jerusalem. It says in verse number 14, it says, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. We should not be enamored with the city of Jerusalem and with what it represents because we have something better. Now, y'all know that I'm all about Israel being restored to the land. I'm all about God blessing his people Israel because as he blesses them, I know that that's a sign that he blesses me. If he doesn't break his covenant with them, he won't break his covenant with me. However, should we feel like walking the streets of Jerusalem and celebrating these customs that were in the law, that the Jews still celebrate today, is that going to put us on a higher level? Is that going to bring us closer to God? No, it's not. And so the people thought that. They thought, man, we're, we're leaving behind this system. There was also a fear of persecution, right? But even apart from that, we're leaving behind all of this heritage. And he's saying that doesn't profit you any because you've got something better. The whole book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's, he's a fulfillment of this type of Melchizedek. He is better than everything that was part of the old covenant. He fulfills it and thus it passes away. It served its purpose and this new covenant will never pass away. So we should have our sights on the new Jerusalem. And guys, the new Jerusalem is not an earthly Jerusalem. It's a heavenly Jerusalem. The next section is um, the craft of Melchizedekian priests. In verse number 15, by him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name but to do good and to communicate forget not for with such sacrifices god is well pleased so how do we practice as priests they had a whole system to follow lots of rules and regulations but what's our system as melchizedekian priests praise god share with others Obey those that have that rule, it says, who lead. In verse 17, obey them that have the rule over you. Submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they must give account. Don't think that the pastors, don't think that we are held to a higher standard to enjoy some special privilege. Being held to a higher standard means that we are held to a higher level of accountability. And you're all accountable for how you serve as a priest in God's priesthood. And pastors are responsible for how they serve as priests in God's priesthood. But it says, Obey them that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Not only does it cause them grief, but it's unprofitable for all of us as we, as we serve the Lord. Now, it says... Also in verse um, 18 to pray, pray for us that we trust, for we trust we have a good conscience and all things willing to live honestly. So pray. So that's the next part of our craft as Melchizedekian priests. Praise the Lord. And that should be, as it says, the fruit of our lips. We should be talking about Jesus all the time. It shouldn't be something we have to force ourselves to do. And I think that's what outreach has become for so many churches. We don't talk about Jesus except when we do outreach. And outreach is a program. But that's not the way we should be doing outreach. We should be praising the Lord all the time to where when people are around us, they know I'm not going to be able to be around this person without them praising Jesus. Jesus is going to be talked about. We may not necessarily have to say, hey, 
let me tell you about Jesus. They should be hearing Jesus from our lips and praise to God all the time. Anytime someone says, how's your day? The Lord Jesus has been good to me. And you know what? I even like to say that because Jesus, it, it, it strikes a chord that just saying God doesn't. Because there are a lot of people that believe in God, but they don't believe in Jesus. And so, exactly. Absolutely. People see that joy and they want they're curious. Mm -hmm. They want to know why you have that joy. And, and that is our that's our ministry as priests. And again, it's wherever we go, when people see us, they should see light. He says we're salt and light. Salt preserves truth. We should hold on to biblical values. We should hold on to sound doctrine and not let those things go. No matter how much people are doing that around us and compromising, we shouldn't. And we should be light. And so when they see us, like you said, Steve, absolutely, we should be joyful. And we should be praising God. Even when we have a hard day, we should be able to put a smile on our faces and say, if someone asks us how we're doing, listen, it's okay to be honest. It's okay to say, well, I'm having a rough day, but, but I have much to be thankful for. Absolutely. I have much to be thankful Especially for. Especially with all that's going on, most people are just, you know, like, yeah. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, downcast. We were at the flea market several years ago, and this older gentleman was coming in, a, in a, one of those little buildings, and the lady there said, how are you doing today? And he said, I'm better than great because I'm going to live forever. Amen. There you go. There you go. That's an awesome thing to say. And again, that's the fruit of our lips. It shouldn't be strained. And I feel like so many people do that. I can remember when I was at Truett McConnell, I don't think I understood this. I thought because I had these classes where, okay, we've got to witness to so many people. It was an assignment and that just felt so wrong. I know that he was challenging people to, to get outside their comfort zone, but it just seemed wrong for the wrong reason. I don't think you should ever force someone to share their faith. It should come naturally. But that's what I felt like I needed to do. Like I need to tell so many people about Jesus on a daily basis or else the Lord's not going to accept me. The Lord's not happy with me. Maybe I'm not really saved if I'm not doing this enough. And that really, instead of empowering me, that put me in bondage. And then I realized, you know what? I'm thankful for what I have. I know I'm secure in Christ. I know that eternal life is eternal. Okay, what that man said right there, I'm going to live forever, right? That should be something that constantly comes out of our mouths because we're thinking about it all the time. And so that's my challenge is when I talk about Jesus, it not to be a task, but it be something that I'm excited to do. And maybe even not even realize what you say. One time I was... Uh, I was going and talking to someone about my life insurance policy. So I had to go down and sit in the office and someone asked me how I was doing. And so I just started talking about how things were going in my life. And it came out that, you know, the Lord's been good to me and Jesus this. And, and as I said it, as, as it came out of my mouth, I was like, oh, wow, I didn't really intend to talk about Jesus, but it happened. And now I wonder how are they going to respond? But it, it came out like it wasn't like, okay, I got, there's a person right here. I don't know if they're saved. I need to tell them about Jesus. It just happened. And I was like, Ooh, well, it's already out now. Yeah. All right. It's out of the box. So I, I wonder what they're going to say. And they said, well, I'm glad that I'm glad that you, you, you believe that and uh, that you're going to church. I go to church too. And I love Jesus. And they told me the church they went to and we had a great conversation, but it just happened. It just came out. So you them. yes, absolutely. And they encouraged me. And so that's, and of course, finding a believer. Whenever you meet someone out and about that's not part of your family, that's not a friend, and they say, I believe in Jesus too, I'm like, I just met a new family member I didn't know before. And that's another privilege of being in the body of Christ. 
You do. Because it's like finding a long lost loved one. Like if someone, you know, shares your DNA and you find them on one of these DNA websites, okay, Ancestry.com, and they say, oh, you're related to this person. I didn't know that I had a, a, a first cousin who lived there. You know, well, it's exciting because they're related to you by blood. It should be equally, if not more exciting, when you find out you're related to someone through Christ. Mm-hmm. And it was starting to get dark, and there were some bikers there. And a biker come walking up to our camp. I mean, rough looking. And uh, we didn't know what he wanted. He said, Y'all gonna be at church in the morning. They'll pick the chapel, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Amen. 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 They're a Christian motorcycle yeah. association. When he walked up, you know, you look at him and you think, Oh, that's some rough looking dude. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. It's always a blessing when you find someone like that um, who doesn't meet your expectations. And that's because God, he doesn't work with one particular, you know, cookie cutter type of person. I'm glad that he doesn't. Um, I'm glad that he works with people of all types and sorts. Now, lastly, number four, and this is where we wrap it up. Um, in verse number 20, we have the consecration. Hey, I can imagine that when they got consecrated and they were anointed with oil and it was a special moment in their life in the Old Testament, well, we should be constantly renewing our, our fellowship with God, our commitment to God. Um, the Bible talks about the circumcision of the heart. And while we are circumcised in, in the regenerating sense, he, he causes us to be born again. And there's nothing in the Bible that says it happens more than once. It happens one time. We should constantly be renewing our minds and, and, calling to our remembrance this consecration, this calling that God set us apart for. But in verse 20, it says, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Isn't that starting to sound quite grand and epic? It's meant to. It reminds us of what we have, uh, of the seriousness of our calling. And in verse 21, this is where it gets to our duty. Make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So this consecration has two parts, God's gift. So God's gift is our sacred position. We have this position in Christ where we have peace with God. We have a resurrection life already in us. One day we'll be resurrected physically. We have Christ shepherding us constantly. He doesn't abandon his sheep. He's with us everywhere we go through the Holy Spirit. And we have all this through the blood of the everlasting covenant. How long does it last? How long does our, our life in Christ last? Forever. So that's our position. And then in verse 21, it indicates that though we're already saved, though we already are in Christ for all time, we still have not been perfected as far as our sanctification is concerned. Okay, if, if we had our sinful inclinations, if we had all of our sin nature removed, let's say Jesus takes away our, our, our fleshly body, what we have right now, and we either go to be with the Lord in heaven, we die and we're with him, or he comes back right now, would we have any sin in us at all? No. We have been washed clean in our spirit, this new nature that we have in Christ, the inner man, is free from sin. It's our flesh that we battle with on a daily basis. And the whole man has to make a decision. Am I going to live the way that I am in Christ? Am I going to live as the child of God that I am? Or am I going to live as the child of Adam that's inherited this corrupt nature? 
But when that corrupt nature is removed, when our mortal body is either left behind on this earth or changed at the rapture, we'll no longer struggle with sin. Aren't y'all looking forward to that day? I'm certainly looking forward to it because I know the real me, the real buddy, never delights in sin. Never. It's always this thing that I, I have hanging on to me. It's like it's chained to my ankle and I drag around this corpse and it holds me back. And the Holy Spirit gives me the strength to bear with it. The Holy Spirit gives me the strength to deal with that until Jesus comes back or I go to be with the Lord. But sometimes I get really tired and there's the temptation to, to falter in my walk with Christ. And that's why we have to be reminded so much that we can't do this ourselves, right? We cannot overcome sin ourselves. We have to remind ourselves of grace, remind ourselves that we don't save ourselves through keeping the law and know that the Holy Spirit came to stay. We didn't just receive a new nature, right? We didn't just receive eternal life. We received eternal life and a comforter who walks with us beside us and shows us how to get the most out of that eternal life. Shows us, this is what you are now. You're a part of the family. That will never change. But how do you live as a member in that family? How do you manage it? How do you get the direction? How do you get the support? We have the counselor who's with us. That's our consecration. Now, it wraps up with these closing words. And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. Few words. <laughs> few, but very insightful and deep. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. Salute all them that have the rule over you and all the saints. They of Italy salute you. Grace be with you all. Amen. Guys, that doesn't sound like a person who's talking to fellow members of a club. It doesn't sound like someone who is talking to an acquaintance, hey, bye, that sort of greeting that we say with people that we meet out and about. No, it seems like he's talking to his brothers and his sisters in Christ that he's eager to see. And he knows that even if he doesn't see them in person, he's going to be with them for all eternity. And that fellowship, even if it is interrupted here, it will never be interrupted then. That's the way we should be thinking about our gatherings. And anytime we meet another believer, that's the way we should regard them. And we should consider ourselves privileged to be part of God's family, not just to be saved, but to be able to represent him in a way that animals can't be priests of God. They weren't created that way. And even the angels, though, they represent God in many ways. They are not born again. They don't receive the adoption as sons. They're not going to reign over all of creation because who's going to inherit the kingdom to come? Is it the angels? No. The book of Hebrews says it's us believers in Jesus. So that should remind us of our calling and our privilege in the new covenant. With that, let us have a word of prayer and we're going to bless the food and we're going to get to our fellowship. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this time that we have together. I just feel renewed this morning, Lord. It says that the Holy Spirit comes upon believers where two or more are gathered in your name. We receive a special anointing from your Holy Spirit, Lord, and I, I feel that this morning. I'm very much encouraged, and I pray, God, that you use me to be an encouragement to them, to teach them something that was profitable, that we can all apply in our lives. Help me, God, to be an example of that to everyone here. I pray you'll be with these prayer requests that we mentioned earlier. We give them over to you. And God, we ask you'll bless this food as a nourishment to our bodies and our bodies ever to your service as your priests. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, God bless y'all. Anybody listening? Thank you so much. Before Sandy's dad got saved, you know, he was a Catholic. He believed that only certain people could achieve sainthood. 